One of the themes which has emerged in these early chapters of Mark's gospel is that Jesus cares absolutely nothing about ceremonial purity. He does not operate by the categories of clean or unclean with which the entire rest of his first century Jewish neighbors operated. Those classifications of clean, unclean, whole, defiled, pure, impure, those belong to the old covenant which was passing away. And the covenant and the kingdom which Jesus had come to inaugurate allows for no such distinctions. This is why, for instance, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus did not shrink back from the leper who came and knelt before him, pleading with him, if you will, you can make me clean. Rather, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched this man who likely had not felt the touch of another human being for years, and he said, I am willing, be clean. This is why Jesus entered into the house of Levi and he received tax collectors and sinners and he ate with them saying that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus knew that you cannot heal those whom you are unwilling to touch, and you cannot reach those from whom you keep a distance. The same phenomenon is on display in Mark chapter 5. First, Jesus travels by boat across the Sea of Galilee into Gentile territory. He disembarks among the tombs near a large herd of swine and encounters a naked and raving demoniac who is inhabited by a legion of unclean spirits. One could not possibly be more ritually defiled than this man, but within moments he is clothed and in his right mind reborn and clean and seated at the feet of of Christ, and all because the saving touch of Jesus. In today's passage, Jesus is back on the western side of the lake in Jewish Galilee, yet once again he encounters the very extremes of defilement. First, there is a woman with a ceaseless flow of blood who, according to Leviticus 15, was rendered unclean and was excluded from the covenant community until the issue was Resolved, which in her case meant that she had suffered as an untouchable outcast in this town for more than 12 years. Then there is the girl, Jairus' daughter, who became sick and died. Contact with a corpse rendered one unclean for seven days, according to Numbers 19. And yet in both instances, A touch from Jesus takes away their uncleanness and restores them entirely. According to James Edwards, quote, all three characters in Mark 5, the demoniac, the woman with the flow of blood, and Jairus' daughter, all three characters in Mark 5 transfer their uncleanness to Jesus, and Jesus bestows the cleansing wholeness of God upon them. Did you catch that? Your Protestant ears should perk up a little bit at that. That's double imputation. Jesus takes their defilement upon himself, and his touch renders them pure and whole and clean. 
Mark 5, in other words, is a visible demonstration of the gospel. We no longer live under the old covenant law. We don't deal with the categories of ceremonial cleanness or ritual defilement. Jesus abolished all of those distinctions when he came and died and rose again and inaugurated the new covenant in his blood. But even under the old covenant, the ceremonial law that governed ritual cleanness or uncleanness, it was never intended to be an end in itself. Rather, it was intended as a sign pointing to a deeper reality. It was a sign which pointed to the reality of sin and the defilement of the soul. After defying the law of ritual purity throughout the first six chapters of Mark's gospel, eventually in Mark chapter 7, Jesus explicitly tells us, I don't care about those things. They aren't the main point. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 14, Mark records that Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Pause. Touching a leper does not defile a man. Touching a woman with a flow of blood does not defile a man. Touching a dead girl does not defile a man. Not really. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of the person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left The people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then you also are without understanding. Do you not see that what goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things, they come from within and they defile a person. See, external things like what we eat, what we touch, or open sores in the case of the leper, or a chronic hemorrhage in the case of this woman. Those things are not defiling. Sin is what defiles. And the human heart, according to Jesus in Mark chapter 7, is a fountain of iniquity. It is a ceaseless flow of defiling wickedness emerging out from within us. And this truth, that it's not external things that defile us, not really, this was not unknown in the Old Covenant. For instance, the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 64, 6, We have all become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. They're nothing more than filthy rags, he says. And we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So here's how you should read Mark chapter 5. Here's how we should sit underneath this chapter. We are the unclean demoniac. Our hearts filled with evil, our lives 
defiled by wickedness. We are the unclean woman ravaged by this internal disease called sin which we cannot overcome and which no doctor can heal. We are the unclean girl. We are lifeless and dead, a walking corpse when it comes to the spiritual realities of God. And yet Jesus comes to us and he touches us and he commands the evil to depart and we find ourselves clothed and in our right mind and sitting at the feet of Jesus. Mark chapter 5 is a visible demonstration of what the gospel does, what Jesus does in the lives of people. He takes away our plague and our shame and we are healed. He takes us by the hand and he raises us from spiritual death and we live again. This is the point of these narratives. Jesus makes the unclean clean. He makes the defiled pure. And whereas under the old covenant, the unclean and the defiled were excluded from the community, they were forbidden to enter the tabernacle, Under the new covenant, Jesus receives the unclean and the defiled. He cleanses them by his atoning grace and his sanctifying power, and he welcomes them into his everlasting kingdom. In other words, Mark 5 is good news for sinners. And it is doubtless that there are some of you here today who feel unclean and defiled and outcast and ashamed. You feel filthy. The sins of your past or of your present, of last year or last week or last night, they make you feel so dirty and ashamed, you are sure that if the person sitting on your left or your right only knew what you've done, what your hands have touched, what your mind has thought, what your lips have said, they would be disgusted. Even Jesus must be disgusted of you, you think. Maybe you have suffered under a defiling sin for years and nothing has worked to effect a cure. You've read all the books. In fact, you're poorer now than you were when you began, and none of these so-called doctors of the soul have done anything to rid you of this defilement caused sin, this addiction, this iniquity, this disease. It is not by accident that you find yourself here on this particular morning listening to this particular text. It is for you. Mark chapter 5 is the gospel in vivid form And it is calling out to you, telling you, you can be clean. You can be whole. You can be pure. You can be accepted. You have only to reach out your hand and touch Jesus. Or to have Jesus reach out his hand and to touch you and you will be healed. But how does this happen? The answer of Mark chapter 5 is that it happens by faith. That is the point of Mark recording this story. I want you to look with me at verse 34. After summoning the woman out of the midst of the crowd, the woman who had been healed by touching the hem of his garment, Jesus said to her, Mark 5, 34, Daughter, your, give me the word, faith has made you well. Not the touch, 
Your faith has made you well. Literally, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. Watching this entire scene unfold was Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, who was doubtless anxious to get back to his daughter, was probably not very fond of this intrusion and the the disruption that it had caused in Jesus' journey to his house. But before they could proceed on their way to his home, messengers came and met them and informed him that his daughter was dead and that there was no use bringing Jesus now. Look at what Jesus says in verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only, give me the word, believe. Faith is the bridge that connects you in your uncleanness and your defilement and your deadness to the healing, cleansing, purifying, life-giving power of Jesus. The bridge connecting Jesus' power to your disease is faith. Faith is the hand that reaches out in desperation to touch the hem of Jesus' garment as he passes by. Faith is the determination to walk into the house with Jesus when everyone else is mocking in scorn and derision. Faith is the instrument by which we receive the sanctifying, saving power and grace of Christ. But what is faith? Because it's not what so often passes as faith today. Faith, I think, at least in Mark 5, is a concept better demonstrated than defined. And that's why Mark included this event in his gospel. It displays in graphic form the kind of faith that saves. And it calls us to such faith. Faith is not just believing that Jesus can heal sinners. Faith is touching the hem of his garment. Faith is not just believing that Jesus has power of life over death. Faith is walking with Jesus into the home of your dead daughter, even though all of your friends and all of the community members think that you're nuts. Faith is not what so often passes for faith in today's culture. So we need to define true faith if we're going to find true healing. And I want to point out five characteristics of true faith this morning. The kind of faith that saves and receives the cleansing, sanctifying, purifying power of Christ. Number one, true faith is humble. This is the first characteristic on display in this story, and it comes from verses 21 to 24. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Jairus was an important man. Mark identifies him as one of the rulers of of the synagogue, and even identifies him by name, which is something that's rare in Mark's gospel, possibly implying that Jairus was known to Peter, who was also from Capernaum and who was Mark's primary source for this gospel material. 
A ruler of the synagogue was a distinguished member of the synagogue, selected by the elders of the community and responsible for, quote, building maintenance and security, procuring the scrolls for scripture reading, and arranging the Sabbath worship by designating scripture readers, prayers, and preachers. It's an important position. One did not ascend to this position without possessing prominence, power, prestige, and probably no small degree of wealth. Especially considering the setting of this passage is most likely Capernaum, which was one of the most prominent cities in all of Galilee and was home to a very prestigious synagogue. Jairus would have known Jesus, at least from afar, as the ruler of the synagogue, it likely would have been Jairus that would have invited Jesus to preach in the synagogue at Capernaum in Mark chapter 1 and verse 21. Jairus would have been present on the Sabbath day in Mark chapter 3 verse 1 when Jesus healed the man with his withered hand. And Jairus would have known about the growing hatred of the Pharisees and the scribes for this itinerant rabbi. They are not strangers. Jairus had seen what Jesus could do. He had witnessed his power to heal on at least two occasions. And he was desperate, a point which we will come to momentarily. So he came to Jesus. I want you to notice how he came. Rather than approaching Jesus as a superior, which he most definitely was by social standing... Or, or even approaching him as an equal, Jairus humbles himself and prostrates himself. Literally, he throws himself down towards Jesus' feet in the dust and he pleads with him rather than demanding of him. He pleads with him that Jesus would come to his home and lay hands upon his little girl that she may be healed and not die. That's the way true faith approaches Jesus in the time of need. Jairus recognized in Jesus a dignity and power and glory that far surpassed his own. He knew he could not constrain Jesus to do anything. He couldn't summon him to his house. He could not order him to his house. He could only plead with him. For mercy. He came as a servant coming to a master. He came as a peasant coming to a king. And that's what faith does. Faith recognizes Jesus does not owe you anything. He is under no obligation to give you anything but the justice that is due unto you for your sins. And so, if you are coming to him for mercy, you must come in humility and you must plead the merits of his grace and power and majesty. I want you to notice what else Jairus did not do. He did not come bearing bags of money. That might have been his impulse. Probably every other purported healer that came through Capernaum would have charged a fee. And so he might have thought, well, clearly Jesus is going to want something. And if I want Jesus to come to my house rather than someone else's house, I'm going to have to make it worth his while. He doesn't do that. Why? 
Because he recognizes in Jesus a man who cannot be purchased. His mercy is not for sale. It must be begged for. Until you come to Jesus empty-handed, in humility and reverence, you will receive nothing from him. Why? Because Jesus will be in no man's debt. Kings do not put themselves in debt to peasants. So if you want to be healed this morning, come in humility. Empty your hands of whatever it is you were going to offer to him. Look, Lord, see what I have to offer you. Look, look what I've done. This is why you should bless me. No, no, no. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Which brings me to the second point, which is that true faith is desperate. We've already witnessed the desperation of Jairus. This little girl's at the point of death. There's absolutely nothing he can do about it except fall at Jesus' feet and plead for mercy. But in verses 25 and 26, it is the desperation of the woman that now comes into view. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Now, what exactly was the nature or cause of this woman's hemorrhage? We just don't know. Mark, like all wise pastors, does not ask for specifics when it comes to issues of woman's health. Whatever it was, it made her life a living hell. Her life was horrendous. She dwelt in perpetual misery. In verse 29, Mark calls it a disease from which she suffers. But that's really a rather weak translation of the Greek word mastigos, which means a whip or a lash or a scourge. This was a disease that was lashing her continuously. It also means plague or torment or curse. This was her life. She was outcast from society. She was unclean. She was untouchable for 12 years as she suffered underneath the scourge of this disease. Furthermore, she could find no relief or no help from men. Mark reports that she had suffered much under many physicians. Now, you probably need to know that in this context, physicians doesn't mean men with medical degrees. It's probably more like witch doctors and shamans who trade in herbs and potions and no small amount of superstition. For instance, the Jewish Talmud listed no less than 11 cures for hemorrhaging. 11. And here's just a sampling. One said you should mix Alexandrian gum, alum, and crocus in wine and give it to the woman to drink. Another said that you should boil Persian onions in wine for the woman to drink while the physician summons her to arise from thy flow of blood. 
Another one said that you should give her a cup of wine. There's a common theme here. You should give her a cup of wine in her right hand and simply walk up behind her and frighten her as if her hemorrhage were like the hiccups. My favorite one is you should have her carry around a barley corn that had been taken from the droppings of a white female donkey. Now, all of these cures, of course, cost a lot of money, and yet none of them worked. Mark reports, in fact, that she had spent all of her money and was no better off than before, but in fact had grown worse. Now, I think that provides the necessary background to understanding why this woman did what she did. She was utterly desperate because she had no other hope but Jesus. All other avenues of help had been exhausted and salvation was nowhere to be found. She was at the point of desperation, which is exactly where she needed to be to receive the mercy of Christ. And the same thing is true of us this morning. True faith arises out of a point of desperation because Jesus does not intend to be one of our avenues of salvation. He intends to be your only hope of salvation. And that is why he so often leads us through deep and dark valleys or permits us to suffer under a plague and a scourge like this woman. You must be desperate to receive the mercy he has to offer because his mercy must be received with both empty hands of faith and not with one hand only while the other is grasping a hold of another purported Savior. One of the reasons why, perhaps, you have not received the mercy of Christ yet is because you haven't put all of your eggs in his basket, so to speak. You're hedging your bet. If you seek your salvation, your deepest joy, your deepest hope in money, then do not be surprised if Jesus takes it away from you. If you seek your salvation, your hope, and your joy in your health, do not be surprised if Jesus causes it to be taken away from you. If you seek your salvation, your hope, and your joy in your family, do not be surprised if Jesus takes them away from you. He will not share the throne of your life with any other competitors. If need be, He will bring you to desperation before He brings you to salvation because His mercy is for the desperate. In fact, that is most often the way that He acts. So if you're desperate this morning, you're in a good place. Number three, true faith starts small. Look with me at verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Some of you may be wondering why I call her faith small. Uh, It seems like this is an act of great faith. I think that's a fair question. Because there is a way of reading this passage and concluding that her faith was great. 
Perhaps her faith in Jesus' power to heal was so great that she thought merely the touch of his garments would make her well. That's a possibility. That could be what Mark's doing. But I think there may be something else going on. I think that it's clear that this woman was steeped in superstition. As I mentioned earlier, the physicians that Mark says she had gone to and spent all of her money, they're not medical doctors. They're witch doctors. They traded in magic like doctors trade in medicine. And I think it possible that all she had heard of Jesus was that this was a magic man who had power to heal. That she had not heard of his preaching of repentance and faith and the kingdom of God. Therefore, I think it's at least possible, if not probable, that she's approaching him here more as a magician than a messiah. More as a shaman than as a savior. But at any rate, God was merciful. As he so often is. And at the touch of Jesus' garment, Matthew records that it's the tassels that came out from beneath their their tunic that all Orthodox Jews wore. She was instantly healed. Jesus honored her faith, small, ignorant, confused as it may have been. And by the way, this is not the only time that Jesus honored less than perfect faith. In a few months, we'll find when we get to Mark chapter 9 that a man brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus And says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus responds, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the the child's father cries out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's not perfect faith. And yet Jesus cast out the demon from his boy. Sometimes, by the way, that's all you can say. Maybe you're here this morning and that's all you can say. I believe, at least I want to, help my unbelief. That's not the cry of great faith, but it is the cry of desperate faith. And Jesus honors desperate faith, even if it's not great faith. Because faith is desperate long before it's great. It is not great faith that saves. It is simple faith, small faith, maybe even confused faith. But faith nonetheless, if it is faith in the right person. So if you're here this morning and pretty much all you know about Jesus is what you're hearing from me this morning, that's enough. As long as you're desperate for him. So remember this, doubting, struggling, desperate sinner. It is not the strength of the faith which saves. It is the strength of the Savior in whom you place your faith. But, number four, true faith grows. See, points three and four belong together. While true faith may start small like an acorn, the determined purpose of Jesus is to make it grow surely and steadily into an oak tree with deep roots, a broad trunk, and strong branches. 
That is, I think, the reason why Jesus did not allow this woman to just fade back into the crowd and go back her way with her healing. The possibility existed that she may have thought she was healed by magic rather than mercy. Jesus would not allow her just to disappear, believing that her healing was the result of superstition. He will not allow her to depart, having only been healed in her body, while the defilement of her soul remained. And so he called her forth. He calls her out from the midst of the crowd, and he calls her into his kingdom. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. thought she was already healed of her disease. Ah, she's healed of a different disease now. Now I have to confess, I'm not entirely sure what Mark means when he writes that Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him. That's, that's a strange way to, to talk about it. Mark doesn't explain it. I read a little bit on it, and I think... A guy named William Lane is on the right track when he says, quote, Jesus possesses the power of God as the representative of the Father. Nevertheless, the Father remains in control of his own power. The healing of the woman occurred through God's free and gracious decision to bestow upon her the power which was active in Jesus, end quote. Let me tell you what he means. He's saying that it was the Father who saw her imperfect faith and determined to heal her through her touch of his son's garments. And so the interchange, according to William Lane, and I think he's on to something, is actually between God the Father and this woman through the son. Does that make sense? And so when the father's power that was resident by the spirit in the son flowed out from him and into this woman, he noticed something was going on that previously had not occurred to him. Jesus then was aware that the Father had healed someone through him, but he did not know who the recipient of this healing power was in his human knowledge. In other words, in the same way that in his humanity he said, no man knows the day or the hour, not, not the angels of heaven, not even the Son knows the hour of the Son's return. In the same way, I don't think that he's playing a game when he says here, who touched me? In his humanity, in his self-limited omniscience, he didn't know who had touched him, but he knew that the power of God had flowed through him and out to somebody. Well, the disciples, as usual, do understand, or do not, rather, understand Jesus' question because there was an enormous throng of people pressing in upon Jesus. I mean, he was being touched and jostled about all over the place. But Jesus knew that this woman's touch was different. The touch of faith and the release of power caught Jesus' immediate attention and when it became clear that Jesus was not going to move on until he had met the one who in faith had received this healing power of God. By the way, when it says he was looking around, 
the tense of that verb says that he was looking to and fro until he found her. He was not leaving that spot until he found who it was who had been healed. And so she came forward and she made herself known. Think how terrified she was. She had violated untold numbers of laws and traditions regulating ceremonial purity by coming in the midst of the crowd, touching all of them, and touching this rabbi. In effect, she had rendered the entire crowd and Jesus unclean. Nevertheless, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and told him, I love this, told him the whole truth. This is not a point of my sermon, but it could have been, maybe should have been. If you're going to come to Jesus, you better tell him the whole truth. What do you have to fear? Take your uncleanness, your defilement, your sin, and go tell him the whole truth. Jesus will respond to you the same way he responded to her. With tenderness and compassion. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Literally, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. She came to town that day to be healed of her disease and cleansed of her ritual defilement. And she went home that day healed, not only of her hemorrhage, but of her sin. And she went home that day clean, not only in the eyes of the law, but in the eyes of God. So Jesus saw to it that day, this is what's going on, Jesus saw to it that day that she met not only a magic healer, she met a merciful Savior. Now, it is true that Jesus will honor even the smallest acorn of true faith, but Jesus will allow nobody to remain an acorn. He will grow you into an oak. He will grow you into a strong, unshakable, deep-rooted oak. When you were converted, you may have known next to nothing about how salvation happened. You may have only been able to cry out out of desperation, if you're there, save me. But Jesus heard that cry of faith. He responded with all the power of redemption. And you were saved. But it did not end there, did it? If it did, you're not saved. Small faith in a strong Savior is what saves. But Jesus is determined to call forth that small faith and to make it strong. That will not be the end of it. Jesus will draw you to himself. He will call you out from among them and he will call you to himself, to his church, and he will place you upon the path of discipleship. He will make you deep. He will make you strong. He will make you new. Conversion is but the beginning of the journey. So true faith then presses on in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus. Point number five. True faith is fearless. Now the attention of the narrative reverts sharply back to Jairus. And to his daughter, verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only 
believe. I want you to notice that's not the first time Jesus has done that. Notice the way that he frames this command. He said something very similar to the disciples in the boat, right? Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And we saw there what is brought out here again, that fear and faith are in an inversely proportionate relationship, such that to the extent that you fear is the extent to which you do not believe, and vice versa. So Jesus is calling Jairus to trust him and not to give in to fear and to despair. Now, Jairus had exercised a measure of faith when he had left the bedside of his little girl and had gone to find Jesus. Maybe it was faith, maybe it was desperation, probably it was both, but that was just for healing. He left the home thinking, my little girl's sick, and she's getting sicker, and I've seen Jesus heal sick people, so I'm going to go get Jesus and take him back, but then come the servants Master, why, why trouble the teacher anymore? Your little girl's dead. Oh, now the rubber meets the road. How much do you believe in this man? How much power do you believe he has? What exactly could this prophet do in the face of death? The logical thing would have been to have taken the messenger's advice and not bother him anymore. But Jesus challenges his fear and his despair, and he calls him to a fearless faith. Do not fear, only believe. And in Luke's parallel account, Jesus adds, and she will be well. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. This is where the quality of faith is tested. Jairus must decide, is Jesus more than a prophet? His reputation's on the line, right? If he listens to this guy, and they go into the house, and he doesn't raise her from the dead, he's done in the community. Is Jesus able to bring life from the dead? That's the question that's laid before Jairus. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went to where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumi, which means the little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. It's an incredible story. Jairus receives his little girl back from the dead. But what about us? Now, how do we make application of this miracle? Jesus doesn't promise you in your terminal illness, for instance, that you're not going to die. Jesus doesn't promise you in your marriage troubles that you're not going to divorce. Jesus doesn't promise you in the midst of your financial struggles that you're not going to go into foreclosure. So how do we apply this? What should we believe 
such that we don't fear. Well, we have an unshakable promise that Jesus is able to bring life out of death and that he is able to bring good out of evil and that he will work all things for our eternal good and everlasting joy in Christ. He will cause us, Romans chapter 8, to conquer even though we are as sheep to be slaughtered. If you love God and are called according to his purpose, there is literally nothing which can come upon you that is not designed by God for your good and your everlasting joy. That's what you need to believe. And the extent to which you believe that is the extent to which you will not fear sickness deprivation, death. God refines his gold in the furnace of affliction. And some of you are in that furnace right now, and you need to hear the words, fear not, only believe. Do you hear it? The words are said to you, fear not, only believe. Believe that Jesus is able and willing to bring life out of death, good out of evil, that death and evil will not have the final word. True faith does not give in to fear when death and evil and wickedness and deprivation and all of the storms of life come. True faith follows Christ wherever he leads, and Jesus always leads his faithful to life. Mark 5 is for you. It's for me. It's a vivid portrayal of the gospel. We are unclean. We are defiled. We are untouchable and excluded from the covenant kingdom. We are ravaged by the disease of sin. We are suffering under years of guilt and shame. If that resonates with your heart this morning, then lift up your eyes for Jesus is passing through. Take your hand of faith and reach out and lay hold of his garment and you will be healed. Yes, Jesus will call you forth from the crowd. Yes, he will call you to declare your faith, to tell him and everyone else the whole truth. It's called baptism. He does this not to embarrass you, not to humiliate you, but to instruct you and to make you deep and to make you strong and to plant you on the road of discipleship. But it starts with the touch. Reach out your hands and lay hold of Him. And then hear from Him those soul-cleansing words. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. Are you the woman in this story? Or are you Jairus? Are you facing death? Literal or figurative. Terminal illness of a dad. The death of a dream for your prodigal children. The death of a relationship that you thought would last forever. Believe that Jesus will bring life from the dead.
By that I mean there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing that can befall you which does not first pass through the hand of Christ and is designed for your eternal good and your everlasting joy. To you, Jesus speaks the words this morning, do not fear, only believe. 